Hi there. My name's Ryan Bernston, and this is 50 States of Mind, a cross-country journey to all 50 states to talk to mayors, governors, and voters on both sides of the aisle to figure out what's really going on in the United States. I'll be honest, when I started this trip, I wasn't optimistic about the state of our country. But after visiting our neighborhoods, towns, and communities, I've been given an exciting education that has allowed me to listen, challenge my preconceived notions, and taught me something new. Are you ready? Let's go. Episode 11, New Jersey. We're back with 50 States of Mind, and I could not be more excited to have not one but two guests on today's show. What are your names, young ladies? Thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Christina Mitropoulou from Athens, Greece. Amazing. And young lady number two? Adam, my name is Esame Patience Okoche. I'm Nigerian. Christina, tell me about where you're from. Well, I'm from Greece. I was born in the second largest city of Greece in the north, in Thessaloniki. I lived in Athens most of my life. I went to college to undergrad in the U.S., Lived a little bit in the U.S., then in Singapore, and then I missed uh, the sun and uh, the <laughs> beauties that my country has to offer, so I went back to Greece, also worked, was waiting for me there. And I've been living in Greece ever since, and Athens is beautiful. I highly recommend it. You guys should visit. Um, I actually <laughs> have visited you and had one of the greatest nights out on your deck. Oh, Cooked wow. an amazing fish dinner. We had it was, oh, it was fun. Talked politics. Wish we had been recording the podcast then. It would have been thrilling. Well, first of all, where did you go to college in the U.S.? I went to Yale University. See, people are always so cagey about going to Harvard. Yeah, I went to school in Connecticut, or I went to school in Boston. It's like, all right, you went to Yale, didn't you? Um, congratulations. I did. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm blushing. Thank so you. what was it like? Because you returned to Greece during some of the austerity and some of the political unrest, right? Yes. That was not very smart on my end, because I decided to return back to my country Literally, uh, almost the exact same time that the austerity crisis was coming. Luckily, one job led to the other, so I stayed. And then, no jobs came. Then no money came. <laughs> Literally. But by that time, I had fallen in love with the country, and with the people, and with the culture. And I was interested in living at a place that was suffering through what it was suffering. And now I'm a writer that acts on the side. So living in Greece gave me a lot of more opportunity to write, more inside information, more pathos to write, and more need. Consequently, even without money, art is blossoming in Greece. It's not like abroad you make a ton load of money. So if you can live, you can, you can adjust your standards. And Greece is not a very expensive country to yeah. live. It's thriving artistically. There's so much theater. There's literally 1,200 shows happening, theater shows, different shows per year. Plus the food's good. Estimate, what about you? Tell me about where so, you're from in Nigeria. So I come from, I come from a little community, a little town called Ikom. So that's in the south-south of Cross River, of, Cross River, of Nigeria, south-south of Nigeria. So we have the three major sort of tribes in Nigeria, which is the Yoruba, Igbo, or Hausa, but I come from I'm the minority of the minorities in Nigeria. So uh, it's called Olulumo. And usually when I say that, people go, huh? The language we speak is Olulumo. So we're the sort of Olulumo people. And it's a really small community. And if you wanted to sort of understand where we were 
say geographically in Nigeria, you'd say the Niger Delta. And this is where we have the like the oil thing going on. Yeah, so we have the oil pollution and all, all sorts of things going on there. But yeah, so that's where I come from in Nigeria. And so what are the differences between the three tribes? Nigeria is over about 250 or 200 different languages in Nigeria. So for just for the sake of, you have to try and like categorize them and put them in groups, you know, just to sort of understand it. So we have then the three major languages. And if you were to sort of put me somewhere, you would say I would fall in the Igbo, the Igbo people. But then I, yeah, I was born in the north of Nigeria. There was a lot of crisis, religious crisis in the north of Nigeria. So my parents moved. Back to the south, religious crisis, yeah. What, what do you mean? The Muslims and the Christians, those sort of religious tensions, there were religious crises and all kinds of things going on then. But that was the reason why my parents moved from the north where I was born. My parents moved back to the south, south of Nigeria, where I actually come from. And then I moved to Lagos because I was always this girl that was sort of like a village girl. But I love the city. I moved to Lagos to be... Lagos is like the state... It's not the capital of Nigeria. But it is... It's almost like New York, maybe. That's where everything happens. That's where the literary things happen. Mm -hmm. So Lagos is like that. So I moved to Lagos to stay with my aunt. And then I just wanted to stay in Lagos. And that was where I met my husband as well. To do... There's this thing in Nigeria that you do that's called NYC. Like, uh, it's a compulsory one-year service. If you're a graduate... What kind of service? Like, it's sort of like a military service. But not really militarily. It's a regimented kind of thing. You stay in a camp and then you get to work somewhere. It's just something to sort of ease you into the society or something. It's a really good concept. So I was doing that and I went to Lagos to do that. I worked my way to Lagos to do that. And I was in camp and then my friend said to me, oh, you like writing. So and she saw this little ad in the notice board and it was, oh, we're looking for a writer. So I tried. I went to, to the place. It was my husband, but it was my husband then, obviously. <laughs> he was the person that wrote the, the notice looking for someone so he interviewed me and gave me the job and Obviously. so yeah <laughs> so that was how i started working there as a writer so so I that's really both really yeah so that's how i went so that was how i got into writing in lagos and that was how i met my husband as well that's amazing that's yeah. an amazing story and writing also brought us together you know you, you can meet your spouse you can meet your yeah exactly friends, friends. Yeah, yeah yeah um so it's great to hear a little bit about where you guys are both from so have you, I know you went to Yale, um, as you refused to mention. Have you ever been to the United <laughs> States? Well, I've been on holiday. Okay. So I went to Florida. So there's Tampa. Why and Tampa? Because my husband's friend stays there. And he invited us over. So we stayed there okay, for some time. And we went to um, Disney. Went to Disneyland. Disney. It seems like a lot of people, when they come to America, either go to New York, yeah. California, or Florida, Florida, specifically Disney. So both of oh. you have been there. What, what are your impressions of America from the time you spent there at school or on roller coasters at Disney? It was very much, Florida is very much like Nigeria, I think. Really? Yeah. Because of the weather, for one. And then the roads, are they have really wide roads. And the houses are big. That's just really like Nigeria. Florida is, is massive. Like the big, massive roads and the big houses. And the weather is good. That's just Nigeria. What about you, Christina? I have mixed feelings about my experience in the U.S. in general. Like, if I'm to draw comparisons, New York feels closer to Athens because they're both very loud, very dirty, overpopulated, well, Manhattan specifically, but overpopulated places. L.A. is nothing like Greece because, well, A, traffic, B, traffic, C, traffic. But also, this largeness, mm. like, there's none of that in Athens. There's barely space to walk in, in an oh, Athenian street. It's very European. 
But the weather in LA is much, 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 much better. The weather in New York was horrendous for my taste. There's no sun, which I can't survive without. Um, and also the people... I love Americans whenever I meet them because they're loud and enjoyable and they have no shame hiding their feelings. And at the same time, because of these exact same reasons, sometimes they can be a little bit annoying <laughs> to Europeans. What I'm... do you mean? I don't understand. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're Because <laughs> we're loud as a culture as well. Exactly, because so I was going to mention that as well. We're very loud. Are you guys Greek... loud too? No, no Nigerians are loud. They are? Yeah. Really? But I was thinking about Greek, because there's this program in, in, in the UK here that's called Big Fat Greek Wedding. And yeah. so I think of... I think of Athens or Greek and I think about big fat things, you know, like everything is big and over the top and loud. So we are over there. We're also very dramatic. Yeah, very exactly. Loud and very dramatic. I think we have three very dramatic cultures sitting <laughs> exactly. right now. That's a good group yeah. right here. <laughs> uh, the, one of the really odd things that I, I felt when I, I, when I first visited the States was women who walk in cashiers in supermarkets that have really, really long nails. That's mm. something I had never seen in Europe. Oh, yeah. And I was like, wow, people really pay attention to their nails. And they still do. Every time I visit back, I'm like, I'm, now I'm in the States. I know. Like, mm. You see that immigration. Hello, where are you from? It's always the nails that come first. Yeah. And it's the singing thing as well with Americans. There's a singing thing. They tend to sing. Like, they talk like they're singing. So I guess with that, do you guys have a... A question that you've always wanted to ask a willing American or some sort of preconceived notion that you've always wanted to kind of put out there? A question about politics or culture or history? The, the thing I got about, I think one other thing I got about um, Americans is that they don't travel. They really don't know anything outside America. So, and I, I got that when we traveled. And, and, and I, someone, I think one of the ways someone ex- Try to answer it to me is that America is big enough, and you, mm-hmm. I mean, if you wanted to travel, you'd travel within. I mean, you haven't finished traveling inside of America, so I don't know. I just wonder why, because in Europe, they like travel a lot. So I'm wondering. My question is, how are you guys taught history and geography at school, like before even college? Because I've been, I've been asked questions even at Yale that were shocking. That's like, what. Like, do we still wear? togas or do uh, literally i've been asked this i've been asked i mean somebody gave me freshman year a can of coke and was very proud to introduce me to coke and if we knew what that was and (laughs) this is with regards to geography and history as well i just i i'm often asked questions that i mean i don't expect people to know everything about history I, i don't know everything about history neither about history nor about geography but I don't, I don't know the educational system in the U.S., and I'm curious about that. It's really interesting. I think the thing is it's not really standardized. Some people go to public schools. Some people go to private non-drogative schools. Some people go to boarding schools. There's just so many types of education that there's not really a standard narrative. Mm. I think U.S. history is mandatory. World history was in my curriculum. I can't speak to others. And then I took European history on my own. But, uh, I mean, world history, I think we only got up to World War One. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then everything else is maybe through the, the lens of U.S. history. So there are some things that I think are major holes in, in our historical education. And because you said Americans don't travel, don't travel yeah. so there's really no opportunity to yeah. spell that myth because 
America is so big and exciting. Yeah. It just makes sense to look inward and our culture is so predominant that we're trying to keep up with that. So it's tough to really pay attention. It, it to is. And people. then TV as well in entertainment and you guys are number one in entertainment. So you, if you were to even, you wouldn't even watch anything that's outside because you own entertainment. We're trying to watch US shows and trying to, so the cultural, TV is so the, good. The, the, exactly, <laughs> the cultural space is totally dominated by Americans. So. There's no, so, there's no way you could... You know, the easiest way... Thanasis, my husband, was uh, was asking to me about America before we visited for the first time. And I couldn't really describe things for him. And I was like, you know, it's just like in the movies. And when we did... It, it is true. It is though, just though, like in the, the movies, yeah. Is so it, is, it is true. It's just like in the movies. We, we went to, yeah. to, to the States and he wanted to visit the Empire State and see... New York, like that first day, and I'm like, we're jet lagged, let's do it tomorrow. <laughs> but no, he wanted, so we exited the subway, the tube, which you guys call, yeah. And he's, and I mean, I just, I'll never forget his expression. He saw it, he's like, oh my god, it's exactly like in the movies, movies. and everything else became as exciting because yes. movies were confirmed, but yes. also less exciting because he knew what to expect, yeah, yeah. But they're so accurate in the way they describe they are. They are. it. Is a beautiful it country, is, it is beautiful, it's a beautiful country and worth visiting. So, I guess I'm gonna move on to what state we're gonna talk about. So, mm-hmm. I'm interested to know what you both know about the state of New Jersey. I think it's predominantly black, is it? That's a great question. Let me look up the statistics on that. I don't know, I think. I think it's, yeah, it's close to New York, I think, yeah. Well, I think it's uh, well, this is adjacent to New York. Uh, <laughs> I know that New York... Is it? Is it's it? 13% black. Oh, it's 13%, 13% it's not black. Then. Oh, okay. I know New Yorkers look down on people from New Jersey. <laughs> I don't know why, but I think they have better taxes over there. Uh, I think they have dis- a different accent right. as well. What do you think a New Jersey accent sounds like? I don't know. I wouldn't. Can you can you say do it? I have no idea. You can do three different accents, and I'll tell you which one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm really bad at accents. <laughs> okay. Oh, I got a cup of coffee. I got a cup of coffee, and I got a cup of coffee. Is it the middle one? I is that it? It probably it's either two or three. Oh, okay, actually, it was three. It's, oh my! I got goodness. a cup of. Hey, can you? Sorry, I gotta get out of the car. Like, oh my ah, goodness! I that's a little bit Sopranos. Yeah, is, I think it's that's where the yeah. Sopranos is set. Oh, is it it's set in, in New Jersey? Jersey. Oh, yeah. then you're, you're oh. spot on. Really. Oh, really? Oh my gosh! There's a career waiting for you right there. <laughs> right there. More impressions to come. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say, what was the other accent? Where did that? Oh, I think it's kind of a southern accent, or like a fat attempt at a southern. Accent. I think that's the one that we're most familiar with. The first. The first yeah. one is like my, my mom's accent. My mom's like, um, Rai Rai, can you, can you take out the dog? Rai Rai, I like that. Oh, can you go to the store? Where, where from? Where from? She's from Iowa, so she's from the Midwest. Midwest accent. I think I have a pretty strong Midwest accent. Like, it's very like, I'm from Chicago. Like, it's like very wide. It's very like, yeah. <laughs> hey. See, I can't tell the, these are fine differences to, to my ear. To my like, I can only too. understand the. The very general South, mm-hmm. which if it has differentiations within the South, like I wouldn't be able to understand. And then all the rest, I don't know. Well, it's interesting when you're in a place like all British accents kind of sounded the same to me until I came over here. And now I'm like, oh, he's from the North. Mm. Like he's from Sussex. Can South. we talk about British accents a little bit? Yeah, it's I mean, I, 
Because when I, the first day that we came at the residency, half the people, I couldn't understand what they were saying. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, I thought I spoke English. Um, so in, in the States, I don't know if, is it as varied on region? Like, I would say there's a big north-south divide. I think there's like, Boston's very iconic. There's an east coast accent, there's a southern accent, and then there's a midwest accent, and there's sort of everything else. Yeah, so did you ever go to Jersey when you were over there? Oh, this is going to sound very stupid. Is, where's Atlantic City? In New Jersey, yeah. Then I did go. (laughs) (laughs) Then I did go. (laughs) And I had fun. (laughs) What what is there to do in Jersey? I feel, New Jersey feels like it's partially suburb of New York, like Princeton and some really nice fancy towns and then like Mm. really crime-ridden areas. I went to Trenton, which is the capital. Mm. You're about to hear an interview with the former governor of New Jersey. Her name is Christine Todd Whitman and she's a Republican. Mm But she was the Republican governor of New Jersey until about 2001 when she left to become George W. Bush's head of the mm-hmm. EPA, Environmental oh, Protection wow. Agency. And Interesting question you got. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to have a quick chat about um, the Republican Party now, mm-hmm. uh, the Republican Party then, and some things about um, environmental protection. Okay, I'm Christy Whitman. I was governor of the state of New Jersey for seven years, and then the the Environmental Protection Agency, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under George W. Bush from 2001 to 2003. So the first question I ask everybody is about your home state. Why should I move to New Jersey? Oh, well, first of all, it's one of the most diverse states in the nation with 150 different languages spoken in Jersey City alone. There's 127 miles of shoreline and beaches some of the toughest parts of the Appalachian Trail in the northern part of the state. southern part is wide open, flat country, looks like Iowa, and yet it is the most densely populated state in the nation. and has some wonderful new, I mean, growing cities in Jersey City and Hoboken, some old cities in Newark and Camden. So it's got a huge variety of things, and the economy is, is going pretty well. It's been known as the medicine chest of the world because of the pharmaceuticals that are located in the Princeton Corridor along Route 1. And it's got a lot to offer people coming to the state. I'm pretty sold based on that. Uh, Going to ask some questions just about the uh, Republican Party. So uh, do you still identify as a Republican? I do, but as an Eisenhower Republican, not one of these Republicans. <laughs> Great. So I was going to ask, do you still recognize those Eisenhower Republican principles in today's party? Uh, it's hard to find them right now. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard to find anybody. Well, I mean, it's hard to find the ones that are willing to admit that they're Republican. There are a lot of people who have left the party recently, but are not Democrats. They still are Republicans, but not they're not comfortable with this president, this administration. Yeah. So in 2005, you wrote a book that had a chapter entitled A Time for Radical Moderates. Mm-hmm. Do you still feel that that's appropriate in 2018? Absolutely, more than ever. Um, We need the people who are in the center to try to take back the party. So what do you think moderate means today, in today's environment? Well, today I would say that a moderate is someone who has joined the Say the Problem Solvers Caucus in Congress, someone who is willing to work with the other side across the political aisle in order to solve problems. It's someone who, from my perspective as a Republican moderate, would mean less government interference in your everyday life, getting back to the principles of balanced budgets and try to stop the skyrocketing debt that we're seeing, fiscal irresponsibility, and um, 
it's something that means that you also embrace people of all walks of life. Can you think of any examples of Republicans or Democrats uh, that are in power today that you think embody what it means to be a moderate? I think Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski on the Republican side particularly. Um, I see uh, Senator from Delaware. I mean, you can, you can find them throughout. The, again, I would look to the Problem Solvers Caucus. We have members of both sides of the aisle in the House and in the Senate. More in the House, obviously. It's a bigger body anyway. And they're more used to uh, working together, joining things. Senators don't like to join things. Um, but they're the ones that you can find who are uh, who are the ones who will work with the other side and are, tend to be more toward the center. So I want to ask you a few questions about your time as governor. Can you talk about what that transition was like for you as far as the discovery of the powers and limits of running a national agency? Well, I mean, it was, I, fortunately, I had had a cabinet, so I understood the fact that I had not been elected, and it wasn't up to me to set policy, it was up to the administration, it was up to me to give them my best advice on what issues they should be tackling or how to approach the issues they wanted to address, but at the end of the day, they were the ones that made the final decision, and I was comfortable with that, and I had talked to the president about the EPA and, and the role it was going to play and what he wanted to see with it, so... That was, uh, you know, that was something I was attuned to. It is different, obviously, when you're dealing with the 50 states, but New Jersey is such a diverse state. Again, that wasn't a, it was totally different, but not as different as it might have been for someone who came from a smaller state, perhaps, or one that didn't have as much diversity. Uh, it was, uh, the challenge really came in getting the people that I wanted versus into office because you really don't have as much flexibility as you'd like. A lot of it comes from the White House, but I was pretty successful in getting people where I wanted them, but not everybody, and not everybody in the role that I wanted them to be in. And uh, then it was, I expected to be have pushback from Democrats and environmentalists just because they don't like Republicans, and I think we're all bad. <laughs> uh, but I didn't expect as much as I got from the Republicans on the Hill, and then eventually from portions of the White House. Hmm. So you're the first person that I've talked to who's worked in the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, how do things like Flint, Michigan happen? What, is, what are the limits of the Environmental Protection Agency as far as, as far as setting policies for states? I know that Flint, Michigan happened because of policy set by the, the state, but can the Environmental Protection Agency prevent things like that? Well, the Environmental Protection Agency establishes the baseline as to what's safe and what isn't, what you can allow into, uh, you know, the water, what makes it safe or not. And Flint, Michigan was a failure on all parts. I think the EPA does shoulder some of the blame there for not, the region for not having gone on that faster and elevating it to the headquarters to understand what was going on and what the problem was with the lead in the water. But it's basically a... A function that was an oversight function of the city and the state. They, the EPA is responsible for what I said. It sets the baseline because it has access to data and the scientists that the states just don't have. I mean, they can't do all the research. But if a state wants to be more protective than the agency, then my feeling is let them do it. That's the way they should do it. But um, it's something that 
is it's a shared responsibility. And in this case, the EPA didn't get on soon enough, and, and I'm not sure that the state or the or the city elevated the way they should have to the region. And maybe the region wasn't quite doing all the research it, it needed to have done, but they could have come down on it pretty hard. Hmm. And that that happened under President Obama, so it goes to show that you right. know it's uh, it's not always a party situation. Uh, no, I mean the environment isn't partisan. Yeah, you, know, you don't clean the air for Republicans or Democrats; you clean them for people. Exactly. <laughs> what misconceptions do you feel like are out there right now about the Republican Party that you'd like to shed some light upon? Well, that that, that the Republican Party is anti-environment. Um, you know, you want to say, look, the first public land set aside was done under Abraham Lincoln, Yosemite. Uh, you know, everyone knows about and talks about Teddy Roosevelt and the expansion of the national park system. It was George H.W. Bush um, who did the Clean Air Act amendments, but it was Richard Nixon, a Republican president working with a Democrat Congress that established the EPA in 1970 and the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act. All those things were Republican, and George W. Bush did some things, too. We got some things through with brownfields redevelopment and some other things, but not as much as people would have liked. So it's not a, it, it, we're not anti, the Republican Party in general is not anti-environment. What you run into with some of the more conservative members is regulation, and they just don't think there can be any regulation that's any good. And this administration is kind of proving that by rolling back everything that they can. Hmm. So what do moderate Republicans do in this environment where Trump is so polarizing? What can moderate Republicans do to influence the national conversation and maybe bring us back to that Eisenhower-Nixon Republicanism? Well, they can do things like join the Problem Solvers Caucus, those that are in, in uh, Washington, because that's where the press goes. They go to Washington because that's where all the leaders are. So they can begin to start to understand that they've got to do the public's business. Uh, I have maintained from the very beginning that, that Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump voters were two sides of the same coin. There were people who were frustrated and angry that Congress wasn't doing its job. They were scared about the future. So, um, you know, what Republican moderates need to do is to be a little more aggressive and be willing to take on some of the far right and not be quite as worried about the uh, challenges they might face in the primary, because frankly, at the end of the day, I think they'd win. It just, it doesn't seem like this environment, there's so much polarization, and it seems like there's not an appetite for for moderate candidates. When do you think being moderate will be, quote unquote, sexy again? Um, well, I kind of think after this election, we'll see what happens, because um, when you had statewide primar primaries for statewide offices, that's when the moderates won. It was the, when you had the red districts or the blue districts, they stayed pretty red or blue. I mean, that's where they were the extremes, because we just don't vote. And that's the biggest problem that we have, is we have to let people understand the importance of exercising the franchise. And if this last election didn't show them the importance of the vote, I'm not exactly sure what will, but I, I am encouraged enough to think that it has. And certainly... What really encourages me is the Parkland kids and the kids who have survived these shootings who are, they're going to stage a walkout. They're not a walkout. They're going to, they're going to go out on election day. They're organizing it at 10 o'clock, I think, in the morning to go vote. And that's been the group that has not voted uh, consistently for too long. Uh, their average voter turnout is between, is around 18%. Even when Obama ran that nationwide, that was the average turnout. 
among the 18 to 25 year old group. So um, I think that we're going to see, at least I'm hopeful that we're going to see a difference in this election of people who actually get out and vote. Now, how they vote is, I don't know, but at least if they're getting out there and exercising the franchise, that's a good thing. Yeah. So my last question for you is, uh, we live in an age of seeming party purity. A lot of Republicans seem like they have to embrace Trump in order to succeed with voters. Do you think there's room in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party not to check all the boxes of agreeing with the policy platforms of the party? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what Problem Solvers is about. It's this group of people there were in the last Congress, there were 48, 24 Republicans, 24 Democrats, and they actually signed a pledge that said if two-thirds of them agree on an issue, they'll vote as a block. Now, whatever happens in this election cycle, no, neither party is going to have a huge cushion. And if you get more people like that, they're going to have to deal with them. They're going to have to deal with 48 votes. That's going to be important to getting legislation through, and that's how you start to build pushback. What they Actually, in the last Congress, the problem solvers actually came to agreement on health care, on a health care bill, on border security, and on immigration. The problem was they couldn't get it to the floor because of the rules of the House. And so one of the things they're doing now is getting members to sign up and candidates to sign up to say they will not vote for a new Speaker of the House unless that person agrees to certain changes in the procedural rules uh, of discharge petitions and things like that to allow for bills to get to the floor. If you have 200 bipartisan members signing onto a bill, that ought to be voted on. That doesn't happen now. A small group can stop it because of the Hastert rule and uh, some of the approaches they've had. And so they're trying to uh, change that at the get-go to really mean that they can then start to deal with the major issues of the day. Mm. Yeah, that's... Uh... I'm, I'm hopeful that that will end up happening and we'll actually have a little bit more bipartisanship. And uh, you'd think that the Problem Solvers Caucus would get a little bit more media attention. Do you feel like the media doesn't like talking about constructive uh, constructive solutions? Well, I mean, it's just not all that sexy. When you've got a president <laughs> who will say outrageous things and do outrageous things. Uh, that's in this day and age, since the media is 24-7 and it comes from all different places, uh, it was, uh, it's something that just doesn't attract as much, but if they start having some traction in voting, then the media will pay attention and, uh, they'll get more. And we're trying to do more as, uh, as no labels to raising money to provide some support for those who will stand up to their party leaders, because what's happened in the past is if they do cross party lines and, uh, we're, First of all, we're approaching Congress right now as if we were a parliamentary system, not a democracy republic, a public democracy. And so every vote is a party-line vote, and that's just not the way it used to be or should be in a democracy. So what we have to do is uh, start to push on that and start to support for those who are willing to take on leadership. So No Labels has been raising money for support in primaries for those who are are willing to uh, stand up. And just for just briefly, could you just talk a little bit about No Labels for people that might want to get involved? Sure. No Labels, and there's a website uh, that you can access. No Labels is a uh, has been in, going for about six years now, I think, and it's an effort to support those who will work across party lines, identify ca candidates, to support those candidates, and to give them some backup 
they are willing to take on the tough issues. It's bipartisan, totally, uh, nonpartisan in many ways, but bipartisan. It's when we, the Problem Solvers Caucus grew out of it, and the Problem Solvers Caucus, you can only come in as a member if you, there's a member of the other party that comes in at the same time, because we want to keep it absolutely even. Um, you know, it's Republicans and Democrats, so people don't see it as being a, a partisan thing. And it's something that, uh, it's an effort that has started to bear fruits, taken a long time. Now it's been six years, maybe more even, at least six years, and um, it's tough. But it is making headway, and the Problem Solvers Caucus is the most uh, obvious result of it. Have you ever been so busy that you were like, I wish I had an intern? I've been there between grad school and driving to all 50 states? Well, thanks to Gen M, now you can. Gen M offers you an apprentice for 90 days to help with your business, no matter if it's a startup or a podcast. You can search for apprentices based on skills, languages, and countries, and swipe through countless options to find the perfect person to help you grow your business. I'm such a fan of my apprentice that I'm offering everyone who signs up $10 off for clicking the link in the bio of the episode. So what are you waiting for? Start looking for a teammate today. What are your thoughts? A very interesting thing happened at home. My husband works for the BBC. He had this program um, that he wanted us to watch. So and then the, he was- The Nigerian yeah, program? Yeah, okay, it's okay. a collaboration between BBC and and another news mm-hmm, mm-hmm. outfit in Nigeria. So it's called GIST. So basically GIST is the pigeon for news. Mm. So they were talking about climate change and they were talking, just talking about generally just about climate change and, and plastics because there's lots of plastics in plastic in Nigeria. And and so my husband's friend was around for this conversation and and so the, a really like interesting his friend was of the opinion was belief that climate change wasn't really something that we should be talking about in nigeria now oh really yes because he felt that there were more immediate issues like for example security like for example you because there's a lot lot of security issues in nigeria right now Mm -hmm. so you're thinking well I just not not mainly. I mean, not in places like Lagos and the more the richer, more affluent places, Lagos, Abuja, but in the villages, in the more rural areas, or in, even within Lagos, in the outside of where the proper like town or something. So there, people have other issues. That's that's what he believed. Because in Nigeria, if you have the money, you can you can hire security, you can do whatever you want to do. But what about people that can't afford that? And there are many people in Nigeria that can't. And I saw, I did see what he was saying because I'm thinking, well, if I go to the village and say to someone, climate change is going to do this and this, he doesn't care about that. He wants to think about, well, my child is in hospital. Uh, you know, my child has this. My child is not able to go to school because I don't have money to pay for the school or because my child's sick. I don't have food or yeah. something like that or have malaria or have, you know, so those are more immediate issues for a lot of people. So because of that, they're not really willing to listen to climate change. And so I think that people, I think that people should sort of understand that as well, because this is how you understand the nuance, the nuances, you know, but we, when you talk about climate change, for some people, it's just not that much of a pressing problem to them. Hmm. And so, and, and again, people, some people look at it as an elitist problem because 
like ah, yes okay. it, it is looked see, it, it is saying. it is looked upon saying. like that because in nigeria the people that talk about this even on twitter within the tweet, twitter sphere in nigeria are the people that are in, in diaspora the ones that are maybe living in lagos they are the more trendy type they're the yeah. more arty type whereas the other people don't know anything about it and don't care I totally, I totally see what you're saying, yeah. and I'm thinking, you know, we, we don't live in, in a fantastic time place. These are hard times, and there's many, many global issues that need to be addressed. You know, I mean, there's war, there's famine, there's starvation, there's all kinds of problems, but climate change is one of them, and um, it does affect people on a day-to-day basis. I mean, the, there's a heat wave in Europe happening right now. People have died in Germany. People have died in in Spain. There's fires. America has had huge problems with fires. Greece had huge problems with fires. We, I mean, because of the drought and the fires, 120 people died in one day this past summer. It, it was a major catastrophe. Admittedly, that's not all because of the, the climate change. It's many things that led to that, including, you know, bad government decisions. But climate change definitely doesn't help. And on a more global perspective, the ice is melting. We do, I mean, there is scientific proof of that. Animals are getting extinct because of it. Like that is going to inevitably cause a chain of reactions that will, will knock on our doors uh, sooner or later. You know, that's not to diminish the, the other problems. If you were a politician you or a news anchor, mm-hmm. you would need to, to find a way to prioritize it. But but some people who are committed to the environment, it's, it's great that they do work about it. Yeah, you know, definitely. It sounds like it's a bit of a question of priorities. Yes. So it's not that the person in rural Nigeria is opposed to doing something about climate mm-hmm. change. But it sounds like they want to be like, solve these problems yeah, first. Yeah, they have other priorities, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just saying that because sometimes... Just to be more empathetic towards people, it isn't maybe not not that they do not support climate change. It's just that they have other priorities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's no, just that they do have other priorities. And, and, it's, and it's hard to see the short term impact for making big legislation, big, spending a lot of money exactly. on climate change. That you can't like, really maybe they're not really seeing it then. Yeah, you know, yeah. sometimes people just. I, I mean, it's not it's not a big issue on the Greek agenda either. How, yeah. how high or low is it in the in the US? As a, I mean, we all know what Trump's had to say about. No, it's a it's a big, <laughs> it's a big, it's a big issue. Just I think Chinese in the US. Chinese I think in the West, sort of in the UK and UK and the US, I think it's a big issue, but not in Nigeria. I mean, in Nigeria, it's not at all. It's really like Nigerian president doesn't talk about. It's not. It's not I don't think it's really. I've I've never heard that as a Niger, something That's interesting. Is, yeah. So it's, there seems like there's this dichotomy. It's a privileged issue because you're able. The people in the cities and the people of education really put it as a high priority. Yet climate change tends to affect people who aren't in the cities, who are you know out in the country. People who where famines affect them. Yeah. People where droughts affect them. So do you believe climate change is real? Of course, I believe climate change is real. Yeah. I have met people who don't believe in it. But but do you believe it's man do you believe it's man made part of a cycle or a combination of both? Do you believe we have all the answers, I guess is the question. I don't believe we have all the answers. Mm-hmm. I believe it's something that we're still exploring. Because it's just so complicated, like the whole thing. I don't think we we we've exp- I don't I don't know how much science is out there for it because I haven't really looked, but I do know that it, it exists because I've seen it in different instances. I think it's something that we're still trying to understand. 
that's what I feel. I think that maybe sometimes where people could maybe start taking issue with it, with it is that they feel like people think they know what to do about it when they really don't know. I think there's something there that's that that what do you what do you mean? Like you could say because like some people will say, okay, maybe some of the things we should do is stop maybe eating less meat or maybe having less children, things like that. And people wouldn't want you to maybe intrude on their lives like that and say don't have less children. Yeah. But, you know, so those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. so they'll take they'll be they'll be more antagonistic towards listening to what you have to say because they feel like that's an intrusion. For some reason vegetarian like eating no meat has become associated with with saving the, the planet. Exactly. It's so so, funny. so that's the, the, the issue. I think it has a connection, but we don't even know what it and is. It's a big and, trend now. And the, yeah. Anyway, the, the, I think I think another thing that's really important to note is you know we have individual impact. But really if the reason people don't eat meat is because the meat industry causes 20-something percent of the emissions because of the way they farm cattle, etc. Okay. I think if there was some sort of leadership in the government said, okay, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, meatless. Like, that's what we're going to do, and we're going to try to, like, change the industry to do that. But there's no leadership. There's no ideas to say, okay, if this industry... Well, going let's make particular... the, bi- the business better, the business model. Like, what is it? It's transportation. It's... Uh, Can't we do it raising... better? Yeah. And that's that's the thing. That's the conversation I think needs to be had. Is yeah. Let's yeah. do it better. Let's, let's not... do that better. Because yeah. clearly people need meat. Yeah. People, some people survive on just meat. Yeah. I know people that survive on just meat diets. I don't mean, any I, other it, thing with me. It is a fact that that the human species developed better once it found a way to consume meat. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a fact. Yeah. Like yeah. so, when you so detract that yeah. gradually, we're gonna become dumb. Yeah, <laughs> so know. so that's the. I think I think those are the issues. That so I think the issue that I find in it is that there's so many gray areas. Even the people, the you know the real champions of the people that are out there talking about climate change, they don't even explain the things properly. There's so many gray areas. And when you leave gray areas, people just wonder what it is, what I'm feeling the own blanks. Yeah, you know, right, like you're right, you're right. people don't really understand the issue properly. You're right. And on top of that, there's this beautiful thing called social media, which now everybody has an opinion and yeah. posts online yes. any random article which you think is scientific true but it's not it's just an article that somebody wrote off you know in in the toilet or something that doesn't mean it's it's proof and for some reason we no longer get filtered legit solid information we get opinions and we like i've literally had conversations with smart people that because that believe x or y because three articles that they read on facebook because it kind of allows us to pick our own version of the truth. Yeah. Because for every so how do you battle? Have... How do you handle that? How do I you respond think, to that? I mean, it's a big thing. It's social media world is totally out of control, and um, I don't think you're coming in with what you're saying. Like when you get we we have gray information, and on top of that, misinformation yeah. and mistreatment of information through social media. Then where is the real yeah. truth that we can? Yeah. You know, I think in general. People want the best for other people. Exactly. And for yeah, I think so as well. Like they want the they best have for information. Yeah. You know, I think nobody so. supports something that's deliberately bad. Exactly. And I think With I think that's such an important that's <laughs> such an important thing that you've said there. I think and I think that's the way we should look at we should look at people, be able to understand other people 
people that do not believe or people that are finding it difficult because then you don't look at them like people that have uh, the bad people necessarily. It's just that maybe they have a bad idea. It's not necessarily that they're yeah, bad people. They, they get it differently. Like ultimately, they all want they all the better yeah. of... But it's just that education, that understanding and knowing what is and what isn't, it can only be had by conversation. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk more and be open and, and be open to different cultures who... Be, who believe in different things and understand things differently. Be open to 50 states of mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is a sponsored ad for 50 states of mind. <laughs> this is exactly the conversation I wanted to have about this. And I think you've identified something really important that if someone doesn't believe what you believe, they're fighting against a lot of different odds. They're fighting against gray areas in the information. They're fighting against misinformation and they're fighting against Definitely. social media that, that gives them so many different options. So acknowledging the gray areas. And it's not, it shouldn't be a fight. It should be a conversation. It's, yes, exactly. Again, with social media, people exactly. get very it shouldn't, be, it shouldn't be a fight. Local. Yeah. this course even, we've seen some. This course even, that's true, that's true. Smart Oxford people, but it's funny when you actually sit down and have it a conversation. It isn't a fight. It, it's a conversation. It's a conversation. Yeah. In person, it's a conversation. On social media, I feel like it's a fight. It, because yeah. social yeah. media, it does that, you know. That's why it's good to have conversations like this, like the ones we're having now. Yeah. Like, well, also, you force the other person to structure an argument better as opposed to just being polemic about, oh, you're stupid, oh, you're this. And then on that. social media, you're trying to show off as well. There's that element there as well. There are other people. Yeah. yeah. There's an audience. Subconsciously, showing Not consciously, like but subconsciously, yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah. Cause, and then people take sides and they like this yeah. argument or they like the clickbait thing, you say. You don't say things to people's face, mm -hmm. the things that you say on social media. Like, it would sound weird coming out of your mouth. Exactly. Someone said about me that I am um, a gallivanting pageant of political civility. I'm just like, that wouldn't even sound weird. Really? Yeah, like it sounds weird coming out of someone's mouth. That sounds like you opened a dictionary to say. Yeah, I was just like, just, you could just say I'm like aggressively trying to listen to other people. But I think that's all the time we have because we got to go to our, our last ceremony. This has been an amazing conversation. This has been lovely. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. And I hope we can all um, go visit Athens and go visit Nigeria today. Yeah. Yes. Live episodes And today. the States. And the States. All 50 States. Yeah, we're going to do a big reunion yeah. in the States. <laughs> With the book in hand to, to, to get a tour. Uh, all of it. We'll, we'll and the documentary as well. <laughs> well. I'm looking out for the documentary as that's, well. Uh, so that'll be great. I'm just, that's why I'm moisturizing every night in case that happens. get there. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information about 50 States of Mind, visit us on our website, 50statesofmind.org, or like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. A big thank you to the band Bright Moments for the use of their song Travelers from the album Natives. Questions? Send us an email at 50statesofmindusa at gmail.com. See you next time.